Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Sung an estimated 10 million times each year and recorded an estimated 7,000 times by various artists and churches, Amazing Grace is one of the most popular songs in history. It has brought people to tears, myself included. It's inspired thousands to overcome adversity. It has motivated civil rights activists and encouraged those suffering from injustice and hatred. It has become a rallying cry for Christians throughout the world that it's only by the grace of God that we've overcome anything our lives hand out. Many of us know the song, but I would guess that only a select few know the history of the song and its unbelievably fascinating and inspiring origins. From sinful ways to singing hymns of gratitude, the focus of today's episode is not only on the magnitude of the song, but the power behind the saving grace of God and the redemption story so widely known throughout the world, and the author of the song was no exception. Cheers to all of our coffee-consuming listeners. Let's get into another missing chapter. Welcome back to another edition of the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Hornder here with Phil Schaff. Phil, it's March 25th, so St. Patty's Day is in the rearview mirror, but we are enjoying Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Irish Cream. Get this, a rich, sweet cream uh, with a hint of mint. Mm -hmm. A hint of mint. Because I'll be honest, I could go either way when it comes to mint. Mint candies, things like that. Um, But the, the hint is the key here, because I really don't even taste the mint. Correct. It's, it's creamy. It's almost got like a chocolatey flavor yeah. to it. So it's really, really good. I'm thinking almost like uh, thin mint cookies that the um, that the Girl Scouts sell. Yeah. That's, that's kind a, of what it reminds me of. That's a great example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're wrapping up March. We're wrapping up March with a good cup of coffee. It's sunny in upstate New York, which mm-hmm. is nice. Mm-hmm. And we're getting ready for um, a really good episode that I know you've been preparing for a while. And yeah. it's also a weekend uh, that has a lot of... Uh, you know, personal connections. to Absolutely. So let's start there. First of all, I totally have to agree. You're kind of throwing me for a loop talking about the hint of mint. But yeah, with with mint, if you go a little bit too far, it Mm -hmm. tastes like toothpaste. This is not toothpaste. This is a thin mint. No artificial flavor to it. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, um, I got sidetracked. So yeah, let's talk about birthdays for a second. We got a lot of birthdays to shout out. First of all, I want to give my daughter Mila a very, very special happy birthday. She is turning four on the 28th. Which blows my mind. Amazing. That she's already yeah. going to be four already. Yep. So happy birthday, Mila. Daddy loves you so much. Uh, and on the 28th also is my sister Karen um, and our Uncle Paul. So I won't give their birthdays away, uh, or how old they are, I should say. Um, and we just celebrated uh, my nephew Beckham's birthday. So lots of birthdays to get out of the way. Uh, but I love all of you equally. And Phil, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh, someone pretty special to us who's an mm-hmm. avid listener, um, approached us the other day with some chocolate cherry coffee that we didn't get a chance to, to brew just yet. Uh, we'll probably do it in the next couple episodes. If we do, we'll certainly mention his name yet again. But Joseph DeViscani, uh, buddy, thank you so much for being an avid listener uh, with your dad, uh, a friend of ours, Joe DeViscani. Uh, you guys are, are constantly... Um, telling us all sorts of uh, different critiques in our episodes and compliments. So we really appreciate you guys listening. And, and the fact that you brought some chocolate cherry coffee in for us, it goes a long way. We really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Joseph, we love Wegmans too. I'm a big fan of Wegmans. I'd love to get a Wegmans in this area. But like Mr. Schaff said, 
uh, we, we love the fact that we're part of your morning routine. So keep listening and, uh, and continue to enjoy. And happy birthday, buddy. Okay. So this episode, Phil, is something I've been working on, as you've said, for a long time. When we started the podcast um, years ago already, this was one of those stories where it was like always in the back of my head. I have an ongoing list of, of future episodes. This was one of the top ones. This is one of those ones where I remember actually when, when I first started teaching here at Kennedy Harry, it was one of those things where I was like, I think I know this story because you, you and uh, Blake Smith would always share these amazing stories of like, hey, you're never going to believe this kind of stories. And it was one of the inspirations to start mm-hmm. this podcast, right? And this was one of those um, one of those pieces of information. Like, I, I is that true? And then you see it in multiple sources, and you're just blown away. And I can remember we were in the auditorium doing a lesson, and oh. we were near the um, the piano. Yep. And that, that's when you actually mentioned it to me. <laughs> that's right. And that feels like months ago. But like you said, it's like you know, you always have this ongoing list of ones that you know you're going to do at some point. Right. Right. But maybe they're going to take a little bit longer to prepare, so they're they're kind of on the back burner as opposed to some other ones that come up quickly, and you're able to prepare quickly. Yeah, and this was actually it's funny. This was um, amazing. Grace just celebrated uh, an anniversary here. I'd have to go back and look, um, but in January I think it was. I'll have mm-hmm. to go back and take a look here. But it, it, they just celebrated the anniversary of of the recording of this. So anyway, of all the resources I've used to research this story. Um, since years ago, since I first heard about it. The Library of Congress, I think, is by far the best resource. So I'm going to go with that using some information on the on their website, as well as a few articles I found um, from their website, which okay. we can share with anyone who reaches out. But I mean, obviously, the Library of Congress is the Library of Congress. So of course, they have the best resources, but they have a collection of more than 3000 recorded performances of Amazing Grace by various musicians. Wow. The recordings, I love this, are made on vinyl, cassettes, uh, CDs going back a ways here and other media, of course, between the 1930s up to the year 2000. Um, but the collection includes every imaginable genre from classical to country, from gospel to even rap with amazing grace, um, labeled on it. So, but of all the debate of the origin of this song, the library of Congress says this song originated with a guy by the name of John Newton. Okay. Okay. Um, which I've done extensive research research on this guy. His story is pretty remarkable. Even apart from um, the authorship of Amazing Grace, mm-hmm. his life is, is insane. So he was born in 1725 in London. Uh, he was part of the shipping and sea trade. And it really boils down to the fact that his father was a merchant ship captain. So he followed in his uh, father's footsteps. He was often away on sea voyages that typically lasted two or three years. Um, and during one of those absences, uh, John Newton's mother became sick with tuberculosis and left him in the temporary care of her friends. And we'll get back to that in just a second. His father ends up remarrying and uh, John Newton was placed in boarding school. But he stayed in close contact with the family friends that we just mentioned because he eventually married their daughter, Mary. All right? And she was the reason why he always wanted to return home after these huge uh, stints in, in the open seas no matter where he was in the world or what he was doing, he always wanted to come back to Mary. So in spite of this very powerful message of amazing grace, Newton's religious beliefs initially lacked conviction. Conviction, excuse me. So I want to make sure and, and kind of dig down a little bit deeper into this because I think if you don't really understand the beginning half of his story and his life, I don't think you appreciate the, the writings of amazing grace as much. So the pastor of our church, shout out to Pastor Tom Pelleggi and, and uh, New York Mills Calvary Gospel Church, He's always had an ongoing joke in which he says, I, I was always a Christian, but then I met Jesus. 
And what he, he, I think that does a really good job of describing John Newton. He was raised in a Christian household, but until he pursued that vertical relationship himself, it wasn't real or authentic for him. And thus it, it, there was, you know, a lack of conviction. I think there was um, almost like a, a lack, maybe he knew about God, but he didn't have the fear of God, meaning he just mm-hmm. lacked the respect, the awe, the reverence. And maybe his religious practices were a little bit more methodical than they were heartfelt and authentic. So as the Library of Congress says, Newton's youth was marked by religious confusion. And as he later confirmed, a lack of moral self-control and discipline. And this is going to be an ongoing theme throughout his entire beginning half of his life. And this may be why Newton's life was filled with, quote, dangers, toils, and snares, which repeatedly made him realize that his life was saved over and over and over again. And on some occasions, he had been miraculously spared. Okay. Here are a few examples. Uh, he was thrown from a horse, narrowly missing impalement on a row of sharp stakes. Okay. That's number one. That's number one. Another time, he arrived too late to board a vessel that was carrying his friends to tour a warship. As he watched from the shore, the vessel overturns and it drowns all the passengers. Oh my gosh. Okay. Number two. Years later, he's on a hunting expedition in Africa. Uh, very dark night. He and his buddies got lost in a swamp. They were certain that they would they would die in the swamp. And just as they started to realize their immediate death, the moon magically appears and they were able to return to safety. Um, so these kind of near-death experiences were, were pretty commonplace. And we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to that even, even more. But here's the problem with Newton. And in my opinion, with, I think, overall human nature, no matter how many times he was rescued, he fell right back into his old habits. And he even admitted that he, quote, chipped away at the faith of others. And it was that habit that that remained heaviest on his heart, especially after all those near-death experiences. It wasn't the, the fact that he goes back into snares. It's actually, he's actually going into and making fun of other people for their religious beliefs when he had his own struggles um, himself. So in 1744, Newton was forced uh, into service in the Royal Navy. He was disgraced. He was relieved of his post, and he was traded for another man from a passing merchant ship, which is actually a slave vessel. Mm. It was at this junction here where the story really starts to take shape. So he's falling into more temptation. Newton was tempted by the profits of slave trading, which I think a lot of people fell into that, of course. Sure. So merchants believed that trafficking and human trade was justified since slavery was permitted in the Bible, as long as slaves were treated with dignity and kindness. Now, anyone with any sort of literacy knowledge um, can decipher that even though something is mentioned in a book, doesn't mean it's condoned and same thing pertains to slavery in the Bible. Yes, slaves are mentioned by name, but no, the Bible does not condone it. And it was very, uh, it was biblical inspiration. That was one of the reasons why abolitionists started the movement in the first place. So not only were they trying to coerce as already temptation-ridden mind, they were using the Bible in error as a way to actually defend their evil practice, if that makes sense. So here you have a guy that's already fallen into lots of temptation. He's always struggled with his religious beliefs, uh, not very convicted. And then, of course, his, I would put air quotes around his friends, use that to their advantage and actually misquote uh, the source of his his faith, the Bible, and um, pull him into into more temptation. So despite a very promising start with a slave trader off the coast of Sierra Leone, Newton once again found himself in tough straits. He's in this new environment as a slave trader. He did nothing to be well-liked by the ship's officers. I mean, nothing. Some of the stories are are really unbelievable. Um, He even concocted this little jingle ridiculing the captain 
and taught it to the entire crew. So he's he's someone who was just poking the bear. He's an all. instigator. He's an instigator. 100%. Yes. So after six months of gaining a, a pretty a pretty hefty profit, mm-hmm. Newton gains permission to stay in Africa along the Guinea coast where he worked for an English slave trader who kept an African min- mistress. Now, once again, poking the bear, Newton and, and she never got along. The mistress hated Newton, probably because of how, think of this word, wretched. Ooh. A man, all right, think about that with amazing grace, wretched a man he was, as he later said, what a wretch, see where I'm going here? Right. So um, when Newton contracted malaria, she, the mistress, she was the one that treated him, and she treated him horribly, insulted him, half starving him, and by all, ac- all accounts, neglecting him altogether. So mm. she's like, hey, you're going you're gonna to poke the bear, the bear's going to attack you. you right. Um, so to make matters worse, Newton was unjustly accused of stealing from this Englishman. Um, And there's no real confirmation of truth to that. But either way, he was put in chains on the deck of the Englishman's boat with very little food, uh, water or clothing. And ironically, he became the man's slave, being treated in the same manner as the people he had been purchasing. Mm. So it's coming around at him. Uh, So for a year, this torment continues until Newton convinced his master to transfer him to another slave trader. So the new master treated kind, uh, Newton kindly and placed him over what, what's called the factories, which are holding pens for slaves. So despite the watchful eye of his previous slave trader master, Newton had been able to send off a few letters to his father begging him uh, for rescue. So one day a merchant ship, uh, merchant ship named the Greyhound, just like out of nowhere appears, it had been sent by John's father. So oddly, Newton hesitated to leave. Why? We're, I don't know. I'm not really sure. Probably because he had a lot of profits in this, this old way. But he finally agreed to return to, uh, to England. He was held captive in Africa for 15 months. Wow. On his return voyage on the Greyhound, Newton proved to be, quote, the most profane, debauched man on the ship. And that's from an Israeli news article. He's earned himself quite the reputation. He man. sure has. Later on the voyage, Newton leafed through uh, one of the few books on board which was called The Imitation of Christ. Now, Newton read it as pure entertainment fiction, but then began to question what would happen to him if it were true. And it scared him, and he just closed the book and threw it away. But aboard the ship one night, a violent storm breaks out. Moments after he left the deck, the crewman who had taken his place was swept overboard. This violent storm creates a huge, I mean, obviously catastrophic fear on deck that most believe no one is going to escape. Newton himself. There's, mm-hmm. there's no possible way we're going to escape this storm. It was massive. He felt that this was the moment where he was going to die, and he realized his helplessness, and he concluded that the only by the grace of God could he be saved. So we go by, you know, and talk about the definition of, of grace, because everyone talks about amazing grace, but I don't know if we really boil it down what it actually means. And we always we always go back to grace versus mercy when, when any anybody wants to explain this biblically. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, whereas mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So he's saying amazing grace, getting what we don't deserve. He gets to live even though he feels like he doesn't really deserve it. So he's prodded by what he read in the book, Imitation of Christ, and he eventually takes the first, albeit small, step towards accepting Christ. It was at this moment, though, when he um, would be saved by this violent storm, and all he could do was to cry out to God, and that's what he did, which marked him uh, saying in in the song, the hour uh, in which I first believed. So it wasn't his efforts. It certainly wasn't his morals or kindness that earned this kind of safety. It was only by 
quote, amazing grace that he was saved. So after the break, we'll finish up the story of how such a wretched man created one of the most moving songs in history. Welcome back from the break. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Shaw. Phil, great story. Great story. One of the things I think for me that that really seemed to be highlighted was it's never too late for somebody to, to change their ways. Completely. You know, you have somebody who had numerous, multiple near-death experiences. You had someone who, by all accounts, was not a very nice person. Right. Um, both in his actions and his beliefs. Um, but in the end... He makes a decision to essentially change his life entirely. Yeah. And, and I think that's, for me, what the song represents. Yeah, that's a great point. And what's what's interesting is even after all these near-death near experiences, and you and I were talking uh, in the break, like how, how many times do you have to right. be, do you have to go through something like this until your eyes are awakened to something? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, you know, he has this very, very small conviction some of it's twisted, some of it, but it's but it's there. Mm -hmm. So he does have at least a curiosity, and I think everybody on planet Earth struggles at some point in their life with, you know, with, with spiritual habits and those kind of things, with questions, with doubts. But in the late 1740s, though, uh, is when things really start to change because he eventually contracts malaria, mm. again falls back into bad habits, and then once again is saved by amazing grace. Um, in 1750, though, to kind of put a positive swing on the story, Newton marries, you know, that, that childhood friend, Mary Cartlett, um, changed man. He accepts the helm uh, of a ship bound for Africa. This time, very changed, of course, in this, in this time period, rather than, uh, you know, coming up with a chime or a jingle to make fun of everybody on, on board, he's actually encouraging, he's in charge of these people and he's encouraging people to, to pray rather than taunt them for their beliefs. He also began to ensure that every member of his crew treated their human cargo with gentleness and concern. But it would be another 40 years until Newton op openly challenged the trafficking of slaves. Uh, direct quote here, it was custom, example, and commercial interests that had blinded my eyes, he said. So another 40 years? Another 40 years. Wow. Yeah. So some three years after his marriage, uh, Newton suffers a stroke and that, that prevents him from returning back to sea. And in time, he interpreted this, uh, interpreted this excuse me, as another step in his spiritual voyage. So he assumed a post in the customs office in the port of Liverpool and began to explore Christianity more fully. As Newton uh, attempted to experience all the various expressions of, of Christianity, it became clear to him that he's being called. He's being called to ministry. So he lacked a university degree, so he would he would not be able to be ordained for that denomination. So the landlord of the parish at Olney was so impressed with the letters Newton had written about that he offered the opportunity to Newton. He was ordained in 1764. So in Olney, uh, he met the poet William Cowper, also a newly born Christian. Their friendship led to a spiritual collaboration that completed the inspiration for Amazing Grace. Uh, the poem most likely uh, was around Christmas time of 1772. And now we have a former slaver standing up against slavery. Now, I want to point out there really is no direct link between Amazing Grace and the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. However, once God convinced Newton of the evils of the slave trade, he worked very tirelessly, I might add, for decades to ban it. He mentored a younger Christian named William Wilberforce, who served in the British Parliament, and it was Wilberforce who became the most noteworthy and effective abolitionist in British history. 
A few months before Newton's death on December 21st, 1807, the British Parliament passed the Act for Abolition of the Slave Trade, a change, of course, Newton was obviously thrilled about. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was, whether it was a direct tie to the song or not, the Library of Congress mentions that this hymn was written by a man who was moved to speak out against something from which he had once profited. I think that's a really good way of, yeah. of describing this. In, in an essay, Newton said, quote, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. So you can tell in just that one sentence alone that, that there is active change here. It's right. not just a, a passive, uh, I think I probably should change eventually. And I think this is a great example. I mean, you can appreciate a song, you can appreciate a book, you can appreciate a piece of, of artwork, but if you know the person behind it, I think you'll appreciate it that right. much more. So, you know, you take a song that's so world over, you know, known and renowned as, as Amazing Grace, but now that you apply the person and the story behind it, I don't know how you can appreciate it that much more. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I took a little time to, to give the backstory um, rather than just getting into the, mm -hmm. the formation of the song. But it's pretty fitting that this hymn has become, for so many at least, including those fighting for civil rights, it, like an anthem, like you said, almost against, you know, against all forms of social injustice. And here's a fun fact that, that kind of applies here. The first title was Faith's Review and Expectation. I think obviously Amazing Grace sounds a little bit better than that. Yeah. But it was written uh, for New Year's Day as a way to look back, uh, to review yourself and looking forward as a, as a day of expectation. But it, it looks back in faith at many dangers, toils, and snares through which God's grace has sustained us. It also looks forward with confidence, knowing that God's grace will be there as long as life endures. So the tune, I want to talk about this here quick too. The tune to which the song is now universally sung is called New Britain. It's from the American South, and it was first published in 1829. Some of the early tunes that were used for Amazing Grace have been discovered, and they have very different feel from the tune we know today. So the tune New Britain is based on the uh, popular pentatonic scale. So this is the moment at the very beginning where you mentioned we were in the auditorium and there was a piano there, and I played right, this on right. the piano. Um, this became a rallying cry for many slaves because with that scale, you only play the black keys. And this has contributed to its very, very wide appeal. Um, and it would only take you a couple minutes. For those of you that have a piano in your, in your uh, house or any sort of keyboard, you could figure this out pretty quickly how to play it because uh, it's very easy to do so uh, on just the black keys. And it, it kind of brings you back where you, you feel this, this sentimental rallying cry as I'm playing just the black keys you can almost imagine um, some of the atrocities that these poor men and women were experiencing. And this was the, the anthem that can bring him through. Mm. He fellowshiped with a lot of revival notables like George Whitfield, John Wesley, but he's pretty old and frail. And Newton explained it this way weeks before he died, quote, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. So I think as we end here today, I think the focus of this episode should be less on the self-awareness of John Newton, but more on the abundance of grace and mercy from God. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.